Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're going to jump in. We're in the second week. We're in the middle of our series of Mighty Fortresses Our God. We preached about it a little bit last week. We're in it this week, and we'll actually wrap it up next week as a short series based in Psalm 46. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. Uh, physical or digital, you got on your device, you can pull that out too. That's fine. Um, but we're going to be in Psalm 46, and we're going to get there uh, in just a, just a second. But last week I talked about some of like the stress and some of the, the anxiety that I've dealt with in the past and my frustration even at times with, with God because I felt like, God, you know, you brought me to this place. You brought me to these different things and I wasn't seeing God moving at, at different times. And I thought just like, God, you called me to this. Why aren't, where are you in the midst of, of all of this? And, and after I preached that sermon last week and I think everybody was like, oh, is the pastor okay? <laughs> uh, pastor was fine. Um, but there were a handful of you who came up and were just like, hey, we, we see God moving here even when maybe you don't and all the things like that. I even got a free lunch out of it, which is why I, uh, I shared it in the first place, just free lunches. So I'm having a real hard time if anybody has a free lunch this week. Um, anyway, um, but, uh, but then this week I, I, I went to, I got an opportunity to, um, to go and teach and train some, some other pastors. We're a part of a network called Growing Healthy Churches. Um, and uh, used to be formerly, it was American Baptist Church of the West back in like the early 2000s, that split. So from us north, it's called Growing Healthy Churches. And from us south, it's called Transformation Ministries. So we're a part of, of what we call GHC. Um, and they oftentimes do these different trainings for pastors who are in, who are in our network. Um, and so because of that, I got the opportunity to go and train, and we talked about some Oikos stuff and different things like that. But uh, amid the whole thing, we're having a conversations with a guy, and he was just frustrated, man. And these are all pastors and church leaders, and he was, he was just so, so frustrated. And he said, yeah, this Oikos thing works for you. It was me, and it was uh, Ricky Hemi over from, he's, he's the pastor at South Valley uh, in Lemoore. And um, so him and I were training, and, and Ricky he asked Ricky, he's like, well, how many people do you have? And Ricky was telling him how many people they have. And, and he was like, well, you have an army to be able to pull this whole thing off. He said, I have 30 people. That I have 30 people in my congregation. And not only do I have 30 people in my congregation, every single one of them is retired. I've talked to them about evangelism. They say they don't know anybody who doesn't already know Jesus. And so they're just stuck. And he, was just, he said, I've been banging my head against the wall for almost two and a half years now trying to figure out how to like get this moving forward. How do I push forward in the midst of this? And he said, I know God has called me to this and I just have no clue how it is that I am going to be able to get any of this, any of this done. So he was just like frustrated and he just, you know, was expressing like there's times like, that, like God just felt like he was missing from this. Right, and you probably experienced it too. There's times in your life where you probably feel like God is missing from your lives or times you feel like maybe like God doesn't even, doesn't even care. Like you're sitting there, you're like crying out to him in the midst of crisis and there's just, there's just silence, right? Or even, even more difficult, people keep saying to you like, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. And you're just like, you know what, I'm prayed out. I prayed to God so much, I don't even feel like my prayers are really even, even working anymore at this point. So thanks for the drop in the bucket, but, but, but I'm, just, I'm just done, right? And you feel like you've lost all hope, even in prayer maybe, because clearly it doesn't seem to be working. And oftentimes our circumstances can dictate our, our response to God, right? Many of you know that our youngest son, Noah, I shared this uh, a couple months back, uh, he has a spot on his brain that no one can identify 
Um, it isn't causing him any issues. He doesn't have any, any symptoms. There's no issues with his coordination. There's no issues with, as, as, far as, as far as we know, unless the issue is him being really cute. You know what I mean? Um, but, uh, but it's not causing any issues. And so as soon as we heard that him, our, his MRI wasn't clear, that we got back, back last year, like we were thrown into a tailspin. Right at that point, like our lives are, you know, we're cruising. Everything's going pretty well. Things are going well at work. Things are going well at well at home. Kids are learning. They're not dysfunctional members of society or anything like that. I'm like, hey, things are good. And then we get this news, and it threw us completely and totally into, into this tailspin because our circumstances can dictate our response to God. Because we kept thinking, like, you're telling me our happy, seemingly healthy, healthy six-year-old son could have a life or death issue that we have to deal with? And so the question becomes, this is what we talked about last week, the question becomes, do we run to God or do we run away from God? Because when crises come up in your life, you have two options, to run to God or to, to run away from God. Do we let it consistently like dominate our thought patterns? Is that what we do? Do we let it consume us on a daily basis? Like as I'm sitting now, as Noah is back there in kids ministry, like there could be something actively growing inside of him that could be hurting him in a real way. Like do I let that sit and dominate all of my thoughts? But he's normal, right? He's, I mean, for a six-year-old boy, like he's normal, right? No issues that we can see. So because of that, how do we find peace amid turmoil, how are we able to reconcile that? And on this side of everything, on the side that we sit on today where maybe like most of us aren't going through one of these like dark nights of the soul moments, we can kind of think to ourselves, yes, of course, you need to pray more, right? Prayer, prayer works. Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you believing more? You're a pastor. You're like a professional Christian. You're a professional Christian and you don't have enough belief to make sure that God is going to be able to get this thing taken care of. But when, man, when you're walking through it, like I said last week, we've got two options. Are we, gonna, are we going to do our best to run towards God or are we going to walk away from him? And at some point in your life, you have made that decision as well if you have said yes to Jesus. At some point, either consciously or subconsciously, because there's some of us in the room who are like, this is too hard. God, you promised you were going to be there. I don't feel your presence. I'm out. And it can be overt as that. And then other times, man, you're just letting, letting the things that are happening around you allow you to distract you from where God wants you. But it's at times like this that we get to think about a, a, a different psalm that we're going to be in. It's Psalm 139, verse 1. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where, where is it, God? And to be fair, these words here in Psalm 139.1, these words can either be incredibly terrifying words or incredibly comforting words, depending on your perspective. Right, if you're running and hiding from God, his presence in your life may be incredibly unnerving. I think about Genesis chapter 1, right, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. And then as they eat the fruit, they're like doing their best to hide from God now because they're ashamed at the sin that they have in their lives. And God's like, where are you? Like, he doesn't know. He's like, I'm over here. God's like, duh. He didn't say that, but that's my, my version. Um, but that terrifying words, right? Like, where can I go to escape from God? The answer largely is, is, is nowhere. But if you're afraid, if you're in danger, you're facing crisis, this should actually bring you comfort. These words in Psalm 139.1 should bring you comfort. 
So before we get moving too much, I want to take about, talk about some stats that are currently, uh, currently going down in America. I think if you, it's no surprise to any of us that America is moving towards a post-Christian world, post, post-Christian point of view, rather. Canada's already there. Europe's been there for a long time. Australia's there. America is trending towards a post-Christian world. Some of the stats that we see with it is that even with kids who grew up in the church, who went to church every single week, or at least the vast majority of the time, that only one in four of those kids are staying in church once they move out of the house. One in four. That's not great. Last week we had like 112, 115 kids back over in our kids' ministry. That means 30 of them. 30 of them are going to continue to go to church, regardless of the work that we do. That's a pretty abysmal number. That's a pretty, a pretty terrible number, actually. But did you know that, that even though that 75% of young people leave the church, actually there's some good news that we see from this. At least half of them end up coming back. Half of them. Guess what age they come? They, they come back when they're about 29 to 32 years old is when we see those people begin to return to ter- church. The question is, is why is it between the ages of 29 and 32 people come back to church? Turn to the person you came with real quick and just tell that person, why is it people are coming back to church between the ages of 29 and 32? Go ahead. You can talk at church. Go ahead. All right. So the question is why people come back to church or begin looking for a church during that time period. The evidence is twofold. One, if you grew up in church, you're more apt to return at some point, right? So that's, that's part of it. But that's not the big reason. Actually, the big reason people come back to church at this point in their lives is because oftentimes there is a crisis at this point in their lives between the ages of 29 to 32. Want to know what the crisis is? Kids. Kids is the crisis. That's, that's the reality of the situation. That's why, that's why we put so much time into our kids' ministry. We're like, hey, people are coming back between the ages of 29 and 32 when they have young kids. Right? Because it's disrupted everything in their lives. Everything they thought. Everything they believe. Like when you have kids, your life fundamentally changes and you begin to rethink everything that has dictated your life up until that point. Like absolutely Everything. That's why, that's why before you have kids, you got real strong opinions about parenting. Real strong opinions about parenting, right? It's like, you know, you're walking through Target one day and you're by yourself. You're just having like a casual stroll all by yourself and you see a, a toddler melting down with mom or dad right there, right? And you just think to yourself as you're sipping on your latte all judgy-like. You're like, I'll never raise my kids. Like My kid would never do something like that, Right? And you just continue to casually stroll through Target for the next hour and a half with no care in the world. And then something happens. you got a kid, right? And you've been in that mom and dad's place before. And so you're still walking through by yourself. you got someone else to take the kids so you can have a moment of peace for an hour while you stroll through Target and can't afford to buy anything. And so you're walking through and you see the toddler melting down. And your, your perspective has shifted, hasn't it? Your perspective has shifted in such a way that you're like, you no longer are judgy and sipping on your latte. You give like that parent nod of solidarity like, right, like one of those. Even like, can I help you with anything? Are you good? I've been there before. I'm so sorry, right? Like, like you fundamentally change. Or even how you spend your weekend before you have kids, right? You're married and you're like, oh, man, let's stay up late. Let's watch a movie and hang out. So you stay up late, watch a movie, go to bed at noon. Or noon, that would be weird. Midnight. <laughs> That's when you're 88, not 18. Um, 
Sorry if you're 88 in here. Um, but then later on, you, you go to bed, it's like midnight, right? And you're like, you know what, it's kind of late. Let's just sleep in tomorrow. We'll sleep in, get up, 9, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. What's breakfast, right? We have brunch when you don't have kids, right? And then all of a sudden, like, you try to do the same thing when you have kids, and kids don't care that you stayed up late. Like, they're waking up at 630. They're like, Mom, Dad, can we have breakfast right now, right? And it's just like your life fundamentally changes because, like, kids are a crisis, they change you. Crises changes you in general, right? Like kids are a crisis. A death in the family is a crisis. Terminal illness is a crisis. Your kids walking away from faith and maybe choosing an alternative lifestyle, that is a crisis. Losing a job is a crisis. All of these things are crises that need to be dealt with. And we get to decide if we are going to move towards God amid crisis or if we're going to move away from him. Because our God is not only a mighty fortress like we talked about last week, our God is also present and consistently present. And that's what we're going to look at today. So it's Psalm 46, starting in verse 1. We're going to go 1 all the way through 7, and then we'll knock the rest of it out next week. This is what it says. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, listen to and pay attention to the imagery that begins to happen in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So as we, as we look at this psalm, we recognize that God isn't just a mighty fortress. It isn't like there's like this big castle that we can like simply, simply walk into and hang out in. But we're using metaphorical language here to be able to understand that not only is he a fortress, but God is also present and consistently so. Last week, we talked about a guy by the name of Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther is a guy, if you weren't here last week, that he was largely responsible for, for the split, the necessary split between both the Catholic and the Protestant churches. And this guy endured hell. This guy essentially took on the establishment to be able to say, you guys are heretics. You guys are not doing what, what it is Scripture says. And so because of that, like there is a, there is a new, I'm going to reform Reformation. I'm going to reform what it, what it is that God's intention was for his church. So Luther so much so that they got to a point where he gets before, you know, this council of people, a whole bunch of priests and bishops and whoever else was there. And he's like to their face calling them heretics. Like he is actively mocking the Pope on a regular basis, right? And that's not okay. And so because of that, they, they actually say, hey, anybody in the kingdom who is caught helping him, you are also going to fall underneath this. So, so if you give him shelter, if you give him food, if you give him any assistance whatsoever, we're also going to condemn you. His diet should largely only consist of worms. That's what they said. So he ends up taking on this establishment over and over. Like he is, he is taking, it, taking it on. And so, so Martin Luther on a regular basis would actually go back to and regularly sing about Psalm 46. And in the midst of this entire process, everything that he's walking to, in the midst of, of reforming the entire church, any time of frustration that he would have, that it would fall on him or any of the people who were walking with him, he was quoted regularly as saying, God will help us when the morning dawns. 
Luther would say these things because he knew no matter what the church faced, that God is in the midst of her, as Psalm 46 says, that she won't be moved, that God will help her when the morning dawns. And largely, that's the great hope of the Christian life, that God is in our, our very midst. And I don't even necessarily mean this in like a, like a general way. Like I'm not saying that, that God is omnipresent and that because he fills heaven and earth like, all, like, like with all of us, that God is, God is everywhere all at once, which is true. And I'm not simply restating Jesus' promise that he makes in Matthew 18, 20, where he says, where two or three are present, there I will be also. God is in our midst in all of these ways, but I'm saying something more. I'm actually saying that, that God is especially present with his people in their greatest crises in their greatest dangers, that there is a comforter there that he sins. And that's largely the message of, of Psalm 46, that God is in our midst, especially when the earth gives way, especially when the mountains are, are moved into the heart of the sea, especially when the nations are raging, when, when kingdoms are on the brink of collapse, that God has reserved a special portion of his presence for his people when they are in their greatest need, that he will help us when the morning dawns at just the right time when we need him most. And that's where the psalmist largely is taking us. But let's look a little closer. In verse, in verse 4, we see this fascinating switch at the beginning. This is the beginning of the second stanza, verse 4. Okay, so verses 1 through 3, stanza 1, verse 4 through 7, stanza, stanza 2. But we see this fascinating switch at the beginning of the, the second stanza. Remember how last week we talked about the mountains, the imagery there is, is stability, and then the sea, the imagery there is chaos and turmoil which is why the chaos actually wins in this entire thing. The mountains are thrown into, into the sea, metaphorically speaking, right? And so all of a sudden we see these, these chaotic, we see these destructive waters turn into this nourishing stream in verse 4. For a long time, centuries even, uh, interpreters were a little confused about this being, there, there being a reference to a river here. Okay, as large as the Psalms are written to God's people, the Israelites, there's... There's no river in Jerusalem. It wouldn't make any sense for them to use this sort of language. But this type of imagery, and it's called the ancient Near East, but this type of imagery was often used in those type of poems specifically to describe sacred spaces. So like images of sacred spaces, the divine presence of God, different things like that oftentimes showed rivers running through them. So in verse 4, we have water flow from the divine to bring hope and to bring nourishment to his people. It's pretty cool imagery. Where did the water come from? Initially, roaring chaos, foamy chaos, especially because the significance of this entire thing, this entire illusion becomes really clear when we think about it in terms of God's people in the Old Testament. For those of you who have been around church for a while, the Israelites are, are God's people in the Old Testament. And the majority of the Old Testament is following this specific group of, uh, of people. And so in Israel's experience, the things that rage that we see in, in verse 3 are largely other nations that attack Israel. They do their best to kind of subjugate, subjugate Israel, and they're, they're kind of like the sea here. And maybe they won't actually be angry or behave with the kind of aggression that stems from anger. But man, it's, it, it very much has the same type of feeling. So for the Israelites, there's war, there's, there's wandering, there's laws, there's judges, there's kings. The Israelites in the Old Testament are just largely a wandering group of people. But they have a definite, a definite homeland. 
And they're they're regularly trying to protect it, but oftentimes they kind of get in their own way. So in in these times of chaos and peril where everything just kind of looks to to be giving way, Psalm 46 is essentially saying, you see chaos, you see destruction and instability in front of you. What is actually happening is God is providing a flowing stream. The psalmist is saying, there is chaos, I will calm it. And he's reminding the Israelites of that through Psalm 46. And this is, this is true throughout the rest of the psalm, actually. If you look at verse, verse 6 again, it says, Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. This is actually my favorite, my favorite verse in the entire psalm because of the imagery that we see in the midst of it. The idea that, that everything that we see, that everything we stand for, our entire nation, our society, the world, whatever, fill, in, fill in the blank. Anything that we see would simply just melt because God chose to open his mouth. That's the God I want to serve. It kind of gives me some Lion King vibes, actually. Bear with me. Okay? Some Lion Anybody, like, raised on the Lion King? Okay, a couple of you. Like, Lion King for me, like, Disney movies, like, when I was growing up, like, Disney movies, for the most part, the early Disney was all, like, princesses and, like, that sort of thing. And so they were fine, and I watched them, and, like, oh, yeah, the prince at the end, you know, whatever, like, tagged the guy in there. Um, but the Lion King, like, that thing came out, and you're, like, you're talking about lions, you're talking about kings, you're talking about princes, like, let's go. I'm in for the Lion King, Right. And so in The Lion King, there's the main character is a, 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 a lion by the name of Simba. And kind of his love interest is, is a lion by the name of Nala. And they're kind of, you know, they, they were born near the same time, obviously. And so uh, Simba, he's all about just proving his worth. He wants everybody to know that he's going to be king. He actually sings about it at one point. He says he just can't wait to be king, as a matter of fact. Right? And so at one point, uh, his dad says, hey, whatever you do, don't go over into this place. It's an elephant boneyard. Don't go over there. And so Simba, of course, like any good young boy, says, I'm going to go there. And uh, not only does he go there, he convinces Nala to go there too. He's like, oh, we're going to go to the elephant graveyard. You want to come with me? And she's like, we're not supposed to go there. He's like, I'm not scared of nothing, right? And so, so they go over to the, the elephant graveyard and they're exploring and all this stuff. And it's dark and it's gray and it's like, it's, it's terrible, right? And they're having this adventure and all of a sudden trouble shows up. Right? Hyenas. Can we just all agree hyenas are the worst regardless of how they're represented in the Lion King? They're just a terrible animal. But hyenas show up and they're chasing them around and eventually they get, get, get Simba and Nala pinned into like this one little area. And there's nothing else to do. And so Simba's like, you know what? I'm going to summon all of the bravery that I have. I'm going to take this like, big breath and I'm going to roar at him. And he's just, right? You guys remember that, that, that part of the movie? And like hardly anything comes out because he's just like this little baby lion, right? And nothing changes. The hyenas actually mock him even more. They make fun of him even more. And he's like, you know what? No, I got to do it again. I'm going to do it again. And so he takes a big, big breath. And as he opens his mouth to roar, his dad is standing behind him. And this massive lion just roar, like this massive, ferocious roar, Mufasa, voiced by James Earl Jones. And the hyenas are terrified. Right? And the hyenas run away. He's like, I don't want anything to do with that guy, Mufasa. I don't usually preach about Disney movies. Um, But amid the chaos, everything calms down. 
Why? Because dad's there. And as long as dad's there, things are good. Things are safe. Things are, things are under control. Even amid chaos, he can calm that chaos. And even as we're thinking about it, thinking about like this idea of voices, right, and God's voice and what it would sound like, I would imagine much like James Earl Jones' voice, but beyond that, more terrifyingly awesome than that, more, more full of depth and, and terror and, and peace than anything else we would ever encounter, and the world simply melts. So the question becomes, like, what, is, what does this psalm mean for us? Like, good word pictures, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all good. I think that we need to remember that God's presence is our refuge and strength no matter what. As we're thinking through this, it doesn't matter like what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're currently doing. It doesn't matter what you have neglected to do. God's presence is our refuge, period. And this is where we just need to stop and like quiet our minds for a second. Because I think what happens is, is a preacher says that, a pastor says that. And you're like, just come just as you are. And your mind, you're like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't recognize the sins that are in my life. So I just, I, I feel like I need to clean house a little bit before, before I let Jesus in. Like, I feel like I really just need to straighten up the clutter a little bit. And can I just say, like, that's the opposite, actually, of what God wants for you. I think there's times where we have so much shame about our sin. We have so much shame about our lives because of our decisions that we made that oftentimes we decide to run away from God until we can get our lives together. And we do our best to keep using our, le- our weak little simbaroar to try and fight the chaos and battles that are in front of us. But Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight are clear. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He didn't say, hey, come to me, all of you who have a ton of energy and you, you, your load is pretty light right now. We'll just make sure that things continue to track in that way. He didn't say, come to me when your house is clean. He didn't say, come to me when you've already taken care of your sin and you've done your best to kind of white knuckle uh, uh, good behavior and then come hang out with me. He says the opposite of that. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. If you're burned out, if sin is controlling your life, If you feel like you can't get on the right track and you don't know what else to do, the only answer isn't to try harder. It's to run straight to Jesus. That's what he's presenting here. It's a clear indication. It doesn't matter matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you assume your worth is. It doesn't matter what the sin is that is in your life. Our job is to go to him and he will give us rest in a very real way. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life right now. Move towards God, towards the divine who can turn chaos into a flowing stream, who can literally melt the world with his words. So the question becomes then, how do I draw near to him? If that's what the psalm means to me, then I'm supposed to draw near him. How is it that I am supposed to actually draw near? What do I have to do to find that peace and to find that comfort. I think the first thing we need to realize is that God has already calmed the eternal chaos in the world that used to swirl. Okay, scripture is very clear about this. Think back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they try to hide. We have a sin nature and all of us are sinful. And so God saw that the only way to redeem man was to send his son to die on a cross, ultimately conquer death. We celebrated that two weeks ago. 
So everyone who comes to a saving faith in the Lord will have eternal life. That's the first step we need to recognize. And if you haven't taken that step, you'll have an opportunity to respond to that later on. So God has already calmed the chaos, the eternal chaos that swirls. He moved your world from chaos to peace. Right Beyond that, though, which I would venture to say that's the most important, there's other ways to experience God in his present because he is consistently present in a lot of different places. Growing up, I went to a church, um, and the church consistently said, hey, you want to you have a good relationship with God? There's two things that you need to do to have a good relationship with God, right? What's one of them? Yell it out. Read your Bible. Great. You guys are great at yelling. Uh, a bunch of Baptists in here, okay? Read your Bible, and what's the other one? Pray, right? Read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray, right? If you didn't hear that at the end of the service, the pastor was probably doing, doing something wrong. And so when I was in college, the pastor, he gave a, a whole message about if you want to experience God's presence, read your Bible, pray, and then here's all of these other things that you can also do as well. So let me be very, very clear. God is always present amid his word. And when you open up God's word, you are going to learn about God. You're going to experience God. Why? Because it's literally written about God. He's consistently in, in that place. He's always present in his word. And you don't have to start from front to back every time. Can I just, can I just break that narrative that are in some of your heads? Like if I'm going to read the Bible, I need to start in Genesis. This is the 15th time I've started in Genesis. And I've made it almost to Exodus, Right? You don't have to read from front to back. If you're weary, don't start in Genesis. Read the Psalms. Yeah, don't, don't start. In, in, if you need like assurance of God's son, read through the Gospels and figure out a little bit more about Jesus. You want peace about like the way the church should function and, and God's believers in the world after Jesus had ascended? Like read the book of Acts. Read Paul's epistles. You want to get confused? Go read Revelation. Like your choice, Right? God is present amid his word, but it's not just his word. For a lot of people, prayer is the best way to experience God's presence in their life. Now, this is an underdeveloped muscle for me in my kind of spiritual arsenal because I like to control things. Yeah, I like to control outcomes of things. And so because of that, if I am not very, very intentional with my prayer life, specifically in the morning time, man, I'll go an entire day without even considering God in prayer. Right? I mean, I learn about God. I write obviously about God, I present about God, I talk to people about God, it would seem like I would be the first person to be like, hey, I should probably talk to him before I do all of those things. Okay, but oftentimes I don't. Why? Because that's not oftentimes where I experience God's presence. So I'm really good about reading about God. I'm really good about learning about God. And that's where I experience, and it's not an excuse to not pray. Hear me on that. Like, read your Bible and pray. But there's some of you in here who are like, I, I do best, I experience God's presence in a very real way when I'm learning about him. Extra biblical books that I'm learning about him. Theology, depth of belief, like understanding more things about God that people who are smarter than me have learned about God in, in that space. Maybe it's listening to podcasts about God or something like that. For some of you people, and you're my people, you experience God out in creation, so there's two types of, of revelation that God has put forth into the world. It's his general revelation. It's his special revelation. We already talked about special revelation. That's his word. That's the Bible. He came, Holy Spirit, worked through people, wrote down all of God's words, like, here, here's my special revelation. This is what you need to know for salvation and right living. 
But beyond that, God, man, he started, he started way before the Bible was written, actually, and he created the world and the universe in which we see, and that's his general revelation. So it's not weird when you go out into nature and you're like, man, I feel like I feel more connected to God when I'm out here. Right, I've, told, I've told this story before. Yosemite is my favorite place in the entire world. Um, and so I was in college, and uh, me and my roommate were thinking about going to class, and we went outside, and we saw the mountains, and we were like, class seems like a poor decision today. We should go to the mountains instead. So we drove up to the mountains, and, uh, you know, you're going through tunnel view. As you're getting to Yosemite, you see, like, the light at the end of tunnel view. You go through, and everybody stops at tunnel view. you got to take a photo, like all that stuff. My favorite thing to do at tunnel view isn't to go where everybody takes the photo. My favorite thing is to scramble up on top over the tunnel at tunnel view because you can get, like, a 50, your elevation is, like, 50 feet higher or so, so you can get a better view of Yosemite Valley from over there. Plus, you don't have to deal with people, right? So we always used to do that. Now my kids do that, and I just watch from a safe distance. Um, so anyway, we're up there, and, and no sooner had we sat down than all of a sudden these clouds that were really, really high over Yosemite Valley that day just started snowing, the fattest snowflakes that I have ever seen in my entire life. And as it starts snowing, everything is just like deafening silence amidst the entire valley, right, which doesn't happen very often. Like even, even if there were any waterfalls going at the time, you wouldn't be able to hear them because the snow was just so thick and cushioned the sound and I'm just sitting there looking at, at these snowflakes just just blanket the entirety of Yosemite Valley in a fresh coat of snow. I'm just sitting there thinking like, I don't understand how you can come to a place and not recognize a creator of this place. Feeling God's presence in, in that moment. And then it started raining and I couldn't feel God's presence anymore. But Whatever it is for you to experience God's presence, he's every. I don't know what it is for you. Like for some of you, man, this is what it was for my grandma. Like she experienced God's presence sitting in her backyard in her favorite chair watching birds and flowers bloom. That was it. She would be, I mean, we went there so many times. And I can't tell you the amount of times we would go there. We couldn't find my grandma at first because she wasn't inside. She was sitting on her back patio. She wouldn't even greet us. She'd be like, shh. Look at the birds over there. And that's how just simply how she experienced God's, God's presence. And it's everywhere. Psalm 139, 7 to 10, it reminds us of this idea. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God's presence is everywhere. Or Matthew 18, mentioned it before. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Or 1 Kings 8, where it says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built, yet give Give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. You not experiencing the peace of God is not a God issue. You not experience the peace and presence of God is a you issue. Find where you experience God best. Bible, prayer, mountains, backyard, a nap for some of you. I don't know what it is. 
Experience God's presence and make it a habit, a habit in your life. Why? Because our God is present. I'll end with this. During uh, the last summer, my dad was battling cancer, and my brother and I did our best to kind of get back home as often as we could. My brother actually lived with my parents for a while uh, in his last few months, and I was living in Selma. And I had just gotten married, and I had just gotten a new job, and we were about to buy a house, and all these things, these great things were going on in my life. And I remember having a conversation with God where I was trying to reconcile the joy of me starting a family and getting my first big kid job and about to buy a house and doing all of those things. How do I balance that joy and the despair of my dad actively dying in front of me? And it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't make, I couldn't reconcile the two things in my mind or in my life. Here I was experiencing extreme joy in one aspect of, of my life with being married and all those different things. Then on the other end of the emotional spectrum, the stability of my dad, of my life, seemed to be kind of giving out. So at that point, I could do three things. I could embrace the joy and ignore the despair, which is me running from God. I could embrace the despair and ignore the joy, which is me running from God. Or I could embrace the tension of both things being present at once. And cling to God amid it all and recognize that regardless of my emotional state, my God provides restful streams and melts the world with the sound of his voice. And both joy and despair can be present at once. Recognize that regardless of my situation, it was my responsibility to run to God, not away from him. Not into my emotional state. Not to make poor decisions because I was feeling sad one day or anything like that. Can you imagine, church, just like what the church would look like if we as Christians began to take this seriously? Began to, to actively pursue God amid turmoil. Because I don't think we do it well right now. I think there was a, a place in time where the church was great at this. Pursuing God, being stately, noble, like Half Dome at the end of the valley, unmoving, unchanging, amid the chaos that surrounds the church. I think back to 2001, 9-11 happens. Some of the greatest growth in church happened overnight on the Sunday following September 11th. Massive church boom happening. Maybe you remember the same thing. Stability when the world is in complete chaos, when the world is in complete meltdown mode. It's our responsibility to cling to God's presence and his peace that that brings amid that chaos. So when the next financial crisis goes down, and it's going to go down, when the next war breaks out, when you have a loved one who passes away, that we as the church would fully embrace the peace of God rather than running towards despair. That we would have a world of people who are curious as to why we were steadfast amid all of it rather than joining into the frantic mess of the masses. See, that's what it looks like to be people of God. That regardless of our circumstances, that we are able to continually walk hand in hand with the creator of the universe. Knowing that your circumstances, and those shouldn't dictate your actions. That the recognition of, 
a God who can literally melt the world, world with the sound of his voice should dictate your actions, should dictate your belief. So the truth is, church, we need to continue to pursue God and his peace because of his presence as we continue to encounter the world and its circumstances. Amen? Let's pray. Father, God, I know there's people in this room that are having that dark night of the soul moment, that, that time where they just feel like that they are in the burner, that they're in the crucible, that everything seems to just be melting away. And God, hopefully you're using it for purification purposes for us to come out on the other side better and stronger and shinier and all of those different things. But God, oftentimes it just doesn't feel that way. Oftentimes it just feels like we're just enduring chaos. We're just enduring crises. So God, I pray that we would run to you. I pray that we would run to your presence. We would run to your stability. We would run to the sound of your voice. And God, thank you for creating a way back to you already. That you saw that there was chaos on earth and sin continues, God, to just envelop your creation. But God, you recognize that there wasn't a pathway good enough to get back to you. And so because of that, you sent your son to die on a cross and to conquer that death three days later to provide a pathway back. And so with head still bowed and eyes still closed, if you're here this morning and you have not said yes to Jesus, made that profession of faith, or maybe you did and you're thinking to yourself, man, I just need the peace of God. If that's you on either end of that spectrum, you can just simply pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And that sin causes distance between us. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me, to take that sin upon himself so I could be with you forever. And see, I would choose to follow you every single day. That as I wake up in the morning, I would do my best to find your presence, to find your peace, to pursue you, God. Because we know you're here. We know you're there. You're, we, you are everywhere. So, God, I pray that we would do our best to do so. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.